0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. In this episode, you're going to hear Pastor Nick interview Nile Saya on his article that you can find in Christianity Today about what really kills Christianity. In this article, Nile lays out the argument that it's actually Christian privilege that kills Christianity, and in particular, Christian political privilege. So, Nick and Nile are going to talk about that in this episode. Let's get to it. Okay, I want to get to make sure we get to um, the lessons for Christians and then we maybe we can go back for a couple of like, what about this? Okay, so um, here's, here's three um, lessons for Christians that you know in the article. One, the sacralization of politics suggests that the U.S. may be headed down the same path as its European counterparts. The good news for concerned Christians is that if our research analysis analysis are correct, it may be possible to reverse trends towards secularization. Can you, um, can you kind of explain that a little bit more for folks?
1: Yes. So we believe that the demand for the things of God is constant across populations and across countries. And we don't see any evidence that Africans, for example, are more receptive to spiritual things than Europeans. We believe that uh, everyone has this kind of longing to have a relationship with the divine. And so the problem isn't the demand for religion, the problem is with the supply of religion. And so when the uh, church seeks special favor from the state and attempts to shut out religious competition, this restricts the religious marketplace and it turns people away from the faith. And I believe that we're seeing This dynamic happening in the United States today, where um, now almost a quarter of the population identifies as non-religious. That number was six percent in 1990, and today it's almost 25 percent of the population. And so, what explains this? Why are Americans becoming less religious over time. I believe there's a very strong correlation between the rise of the so-called nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, non-religious believers, and the politicizing of religion in the United States. Uh, this is something that's been going on for quite some time now, uh, since the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s. Um, but the rise of Christianity's politicization in the United States has corresponded to a decline in the number of Christian believers, just as we would predict uh, in, in our theory and analysis of the situation.
0: Okay. Um, when you say, so in, when we were talking about this before, we were talking about like sort of like state religions, like in England, there's a state church mm-hmm. or in some places there are laws against Uh, People who aren't Christians, like Mm -hmm. anti-hijab or anti-burka laws, right? Uh, Those sorts of things. In this case, you talked about the sacralization, right, of Mm -hmm. like making politics sacred somehow, and like introducing them within the fabric of religion, Mm -hmm. so that they're inside the fabric of religion. Somebody might be like, "Oh, wait, that you just played like a shell game trick on us. Like that was a sleight of hand. Like we were talking about one thing in terms of religion in the state, and now we're talking about something completely different." In what way are these the same? What 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 is the sacralization of religion in the United States you're talking about, and how is that similar to what you mean? Is it as simple as like the Christian right in the '80s, like wanted to be the new moral, wanted to like formalize a more quote moral majority, and like institutionalize both in terms of public policy and um sort of private stigmatization. Christian ethics the way they imagined them. That is focusing on premarital sex and being against gays, but like not focusing that much on racism or something like that. You know, that kind of thing. Uh Um, Is it that, is that what you're talking about? Or is it something like, is this a Trump phenomenon? Like, what is it? What should people think about in terms of this?
1: Well, uh, with respect to Trump, uh, I don't think Trump is the cause of any of this. Uh, I believe that he's a symptom of a long-term trend that's been going on for the past 40 years, but I don't think that he is uh, the cause. He just made it very clear, I think, what's happening in the United States. The U.S. is a very interesting case because, you know, in comparison to Europe, the U.S. remains a highly religious country, and as Christianity was declining in the countries of Europe, it was remaining very strong in the United States up until quite recently. So what's going on here? I think that the United States is unique in the sense uh, that it has a very uh, strong separation of church and state. The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution says Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or preventing the or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So, there haven't been any state churches in the US like we find in Europe. And so, Christianity in the United States has essentially had to fend for itself. And I would argue this has been a good thing. It's kept Christianity strong. But as Christianity has attempted, or I should say, certain elements in Christianity have attempted to gain political power, uh, we see the same trend happening in the US that we've seen happen across the Atlantic in europe uh, with the increasing secularization now what i mean by the sacralization of politics is quite simply that there are many christians in the united states who believe that the united states was founded as a christian nation and that the politics of the united states should reflect so-called christian values and this is something that can coexist with a separation of religion and state christian nationalism um and so these individuals would say that we need god back in america again we need prayer back in public schools and we need to recover the christian culture that we've lost and if we don't we risk god turning his back on this country and so um because the united states is a christian nation then it makes perfect sense for christians to try and uh, have a seat at the table and to bring their values to bear in the political sphere and even to capture the institutions of government if that's possible so that's perfectly compatible with a kind of legal and formal separation of religion and state
0: so and that's not what you're talking about that doesn't depress religious belief what you just just said
1: oh i think it does but it's not what it's not what we're looking at in this particular article okay right now if you're interested and your listeners are interested i would recommend a very good book by two sociologists named andrew whitehead and samuel perry and the title of the book is taking america back for god and they Mm -hmm. look specifically at the effect of christian nationalism on a whole range of issues in the united states uh, but what we're looking at in this particular study is something different. We're looking at formal discrimination against religion and the privileging of religion.
0: So, okay, let me let me ask let me ask something this way because I think some Christians are going to listen to you and say, "Okay, this sounds strange, like a strange thesis." It sounds like what your what what this really means. The subtext really is is not the privileging of Christian religion or wanting to quote take America for God but the conservative version of that, that whenever the, whenever it's the conservative version of that, it has this negative effect. But like throughout American history, there has been a ton of religion in public life and in politics from the very, from, I mean, from 1621 on, Um, rhetoric, speeches, public prayers, the black regiment, all the preachers supporting the American revolution, um, uh, presidents who were revivalist preachers before their political career. I mean, just all kinds of Christian, even, I mean, even the, um, the maintenance of slavery, um, the fighting of slavery. I mean, the, the arguments of the abolitionists and the arguments of slaveholders were highly religious and highly Christian in nature, right? All the way through American history. It sounds like you're starting the clock at the beginning of the 1960s culture wars and that when the conservatives of Christianity began to use Christian belief as a conservative mechanism by which to conserve the country from lurching left, that that's when this took place. And that sounds like either you're cherry-picking or not every version of the sacralization of religion is ne- creates less Christians, but just the conservative version. What would you do with that kind of objection?
1: Well, let me just say two things. Uh, first, I'm not opposed to Christians being active in the public square. I do believe that the church has its own politics, and the politics of the church is different from the politics of the state. But I also believe that uh, social transformation lies at the heart of the gospel, and that Christians should attempt to make a difference in accordance with their beliefs in the social realm. But the way that it does this is different from the standard ways of the world. So we don't attempt to take over the institutions of the state. What we do instead is we simply let the church be the church, as Karl Barth says. We let the church be the church, and uh, we allow uh, the church to transform the world by simply being obedient to the commands of Christ. That is by
0: persuasion rather than by coercion. Exactly. It sounds like what you're exactly. going back, essentially going back to the economic principles you're using. Like in the, in the, as long as religion remains within the realm of free trade, mm-hmm. that is it's sort of a spiritual economic metaphor. It works great. Everybody's happy. People buy and sell. Everybody's happy about it. They do what they think is best. The minute you come with a sword and say, you're going to do this. That right. is, you have now the power of the state behind you. People get all defensive and they're like, well, who are you to tell me this? And it's clearly not on the basis of truth. And this is no longer voluntary and I'm not choosing it. And we're not exchanging anymore. This is something else.
1: I believe it's, against the christian faith and the christian tradition to impose christianity on anyone who doesn't want to be a part of it Um, the other thing that i wanted to say is that you're right this is not a partisan issue more recently in the united states it's been kind of this right-wing christian conservatism that's spawned this backlash against religion Mm -hmm. i believe that there's a lot of evidence to support that but it's not a partisan issue because Earlier in the 20th century, we see the same kind of dynamic happening with the so-called social gospel movement, which was a progressive Christian movement that attempted to uh, to instill Christian values in politics and society. Now, the social gospel so do you, movement— do you
0: think that was, that was integral to the decline of the mainline churches?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because as soon as we see the politicizing of the social gospel movement— the churches that were associated with that movement began to decline in the 1950s and 1960s, and these were the mainline churches. And these churches haven't recovered even to this day. And what I would suggest is we're going to see the same thing happening in evangelical conservative churches going forward as we saw happening in these mainline churches in the 20th century.
0: Do you think that this is a, okay, so so we can look at this from like a broader sociological perspective, right? But Nile, do you think that this could go church by church that like individual churches that choose to not sacralize politics, right, and to into focus on these lessons. Do you think individual churches like in a city like Madison, like if my church, high point church is like, okay, we're gonna learn these lessons, we're gonna play ball this way. Like is this the kind of thing that an individual individual church or an individual denomination, if they like understood this, they could do better even while others or do you think that this is like a society wide consciousness? That it, there's, a, there's like a cultural ether that's affecting people, and either everybody gets on board and changes things, or it's, re, it's, or it's really hard for just a few people to do something about this.
1: Uh, I don't believe that individual churches will be able to stand up against this trend because the wider yeah. culture isn't going to make these distinctions between certain denominations, right. let alone between uh, particular churches. So I think that you know this is something that's going to be society-wide. And I think what's happening is that there are two different groups of people that are being repelled from the faith. The first is the religious outsider who may be interested in Christianity. They may want to learn more about the faith. But then they look at how the church involves itself in, pol- in politics and says, look, you're nothing more than a political interest group. And we have enough of that in society. So why would I want to join your faith movement when you're really no different from everyone else? Now, the second group that's being repelled are those Christians who are already in the church and they don't like what's happening. And they feel like that there's no room for them anymore as uh, political independents or just those who identify as followers of Christ and really don't pay much attention to politics. And so it's forcing these individuals out of the church, even as it's keeping potential converts from joining.
0: Okay. All right, so I again I just want to take this in like nine other directions, but let's I want to stick with like your lessons first. So the second lesson is this would require institutions of faith to shun the temptation of privilege and to not see religious competition as threatening and something that should be shut out. Such an approach such an approach would not require Christians to segregate themselves from public life or abandon politics altogether. However, it would strongly caution Christians against equating any political party, political ideology or nation with God's plans. I think I think you've already kind of articulated that. Is there anything else you want to add to it before we move on?
1: Um, you know, just think about um, how Christians throughout the West see certain political leaders or certain political parties as being the party of God or as God's chosen uh, leader of a state. It's that kind of thinking that I would suggest will lead to the decline of Christianity because Christianity becomes implicated whenever that political party or political leader does something that's contrary to the teachings of Christ. And Mm -hmm. the world, unfortunately, isn't going to make that distinction. And we in the West have been, I think, far too open to allow uh, the Christian faith to be co-opted by political leaders and parties.
0: Yeah. Okay. So one of the ways you say this is in lesson three, our research suggests the best way for Christian communities to recover their gospel witness is to reject the quest for political privilege as inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus. And doing so, they would show that they take seriously Christ's promise that no force will be able to prevail against his church and rejecting privilege will make believers more reliant on the Holy Spirit to open hearts to the gospel message.
1: Yes. So, um, you know, it's an interesting thing because in environments of pluralism, I believe this is something that Christians should want. They should want uh, their countries to be religiously plural because it provides more opportunities to witness, right? If everyone say theoretically became a Christian, well, who's left to witness to, you know, who, who, In 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 an environment like that, you wouldn't expect a very strong church. So not only does pluralism mean that Christians have to compete against non-Christians in a non-violent kind of way, but it also means that there's more potential people to show the love of Christ to. And this is a good thing, and it's something that the church should welcome. And in rejecting the quest for for political privilege— it also means that Christians have to be more reliant on the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit to open hearts and minds as Christians themselves remain obedient to the commands of Christ to go and make disciples.
0: All right, I want to I want to offer two possible Christian objections here mm-hmm. that are the the strongest I can think of right now. What about this. And I'm going to couch them both in economic terms since we've talked about supply-side economics and free markets mm-hmm. as as a Smith discussed them. Um, So one is market fairness. So for example, one of the things, one of the arguments going on in the United States right now is that if the people's Republic of China debases their current currency and works in such a way economically as to undervalue their goods and sell them to Americans at cheaper prices to keep their people employed on one level, there are some people say that's fine. Like the true free traders say that's fine because it just makes us richer, right? Like if they sell their goods to us more cheaply than they make them, because they debase their own currency. They're just transferring wealth to us. That's a good thing. We should just buy their cheap goods. This is great. Why are we upset about this, right? Um, But other people say this. They say, well, sort of, but it also creates an enormous market distortion because we don't invest economically rightly because of the way this distorts the market. So you don't really have a free exchange economically. You're you're, You're not really causing some people to freely succeed because they're providing goods and services better. Right, Because the system is being cheated, you don't really have a free market. And that actually destroys the American market because we don't produce steel or invest in it the way we should because cheap steel is getting dumped and so on. Right. One of the ways some Christians I think would object to what you're saying is they would say, um, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from. And like on one level, I do want, quote, a free market of ideas. However, the reason there's a culture war in America is because in the 1960s, political radicals and ideological progressives got into the universities – they progressivized the universities, and now they've progressivized not just the universities, but the secondary school system all the way down to the primary school system so that here in Madison, honest to God, I have five and six-year-olds coming home from public school telling their parents they can't possibly know if they're a little boy or a little girl. It's impossible to know your sex as a human being because that's what they're being taught as a fundamental, axiomatic, non-deniable truth in public school. Mm -hmm. And so some people are like, you know, you're just wrong about this. You're saying that the more we sacralize religion, the less religious we become. It's actually the opposite. Um, we are being drawn into sacralizing our religious faith because of the market distortion created by irreligious progressivism here in America. And that's been kind of quietly coming on, but now it's become utterly ubiquitous and we're seeing whole generations of young people turn away from the gospel. And it's actually not because we're like, at, we're becoming like connected with politics. We're becoming connected with politics because they've stolen our children. So what would you say about the argument that like, nearly there's it's not a free market in America. Because our institutions have been captured by a anti-religious or irreligious secularization. And we're just, we're re- re- reacting to that. You've actually got the causal relationship wrong here. How would, I mean, how would you talk to people about that?
1: Well, I think, you know, you're right on the one hand, right? These are disturbing trends. And uh, it's it's natural, I think, for Christians to feel the way you just expressed about these things. Um. But I think what I would answer is why do we see public educational institutions, either um, elementary schools or high schools or colleges and universities, why do we see these kinds of institutions or why do we see government institutions as the bearers of virtue in American public life? Why are we surprised when we see the world acting like the world? This is what the world does and i love how stanley harwas puts it the you know the famous theologian um he says that the job of the church is to show the world how to be the world and the church does this by being the church so we shouldn't be surprised at you know the degradation of american culture at um you know when, when politicians act the way that they do you know this is completely expected But I would also argue that one of the reasons why the church has lost these so-called culture wars is because it's failed to be the church. It's failed to follow in the way of Christ. And um, a stronger church, I think, would be able to naturally counter some of these trends towards secularization and progressivism, as you mentioned um, if it were simply to renounce the temptation of political privilege and try and, and impose a Christian way of life on the rest of society, I think that it's natural to want to try and combat these kinds of uh, trends that we're seeing in culture, but there's a way to go about it. And we have the blueprint in uh, Scripture itself. So to bring it back to the gospel, uh, Jesus lived in politically hot times, and people were constantly trying to get Jesus to weigh in on the political issues of the day, and he never took the bait. What he did instead is he always pointed people back to the kingdom of God, and he showed very clearly how his kingdom differed from the kingdoms of the world. You know, in the same way, we shouldn't be surprised that The kingdoms that we live in today, we call them countries, um, are so different from the kingdom of God. They have nothing to do with each other. And the job of the Christian is to remember that our allegiance is to Jesus and to Christ alone. And if we simply follow in the way of Christ, we will make uh, the biggest difference possible.
0: Okay, Neely, that was both a a good answer and you've fallen right into my second trap Mm -hmm. which is um two issues the the first is yes this that's true nearly but in the west we don't raise our children right i mean this is part of the the issue of the institutionalized state is that we don't raise our children and so the idea that the quote the church has failed in like inculcating christianity the church doesn't raise its children the state does so, we the, part of the reason why Christians get upset about these institutions like the school that like, well, why should you say, well, why should they be the locust of moral virtue? And the answer is because they influence our children 8 to 12 hours a day instead of us as parents. And we, ha, we are forced to pay taxes into a system in which we're supposed to send our kids to these schools. We have literal no control over them because we don't have any privilege, right? And so they're taught whatever the state wishes to teach them for eight to 10 hours a day. And then we get them for a couple hours before they go to bed. Right. And so on, or the, and then in addition to that, there's the second argument, which is the reason why Christians wanted to instantiate Christian laws, like further back than the 1960s, like blue laws and that sort of thing was because of the economic principle sometimes referred to as the tragedy of the commons. Right. Which is when nobody's like in charge of anything in, in like, the lowest common denominator kind of becomes the norm, you get populist failure. So this is one of the reasons, for example, why there was anti-pornography laws. Because it was like, if you could just put pornography anywhere, then tons of people would fall into addiction to pornography because it was just everywhere, right? Viscerality rules when anything just flies everywhere. And people aren't expected to have a certain agreed upon set of dis- um, sets of discretion, right? Which is one of the reasons why when you have very high levels of immigration from people from all kinds of different places in the world, you tend to get a bunch of like diversity consternation where people get upset about like, okay, wait, what is the set of values we agree on by which we can be constructive in building a society as opposed to just like whatever happens just sort of happens. Because when that happens, usually everybody's worst comes out, which is very unhelpful, right? So I think Christians would say something like, Well, it's great for Stan Hauerwas with his little PhD at Duke to say, we have to be the church and he can be all Anabaptist and like, you know, like we're going to, you know, we're the light of the world. Fine. But my six-year-old who goes to government schools is not a missionary. And it's, and I cannot teach my six-year-old or my 12-year-old or even my 16-year-old to Face up to his 120 IQ, master's degree-bearing, secular teacher who is anti-religious at their core, in front of all the students who are supposed to nod to the gay flag hanging in the back of the classroom, and expect him to stand like stand like one of Daniel's friends, knowing they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. Like this is not reasonable, even knowing that the gospel is this triumphant truth in which we should put our faith. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you, how do you overcome? People saying, okay, Neely, like, yeah, I agree that the church has to be the church, and the church will always be a minority, and therefore we will be the unprivileged people, and we have to be the light of the world. That's all true. But in industrialized societies, we don't even raise our own kids, so the state has an incredible amount of influence. And in a capitalistic and media-based world, there's an enormous viscerality of the tragedy of the commons. like it's great for you as a scholar to imagine that we can just overcome all of that. But for somebody like me, who's a churchman, who's supposed to design a church community that can overcome both the tragedy of the commons of consumerism and dig- digital life and the status indoctrination of government schools and government life, I kind of want to throw a chair at you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I, I sympathize with that view. I really do, because I'm concerned also about the uh, kinds of trends that we're seeing uh, Mm -hmm. in in American culture and Western culture more generally. Um, I guess what I would say is that there is a way that I believe Christians can recover their gospel witness. And I understand that, you know, children have to go to schools and, uh, you know, we have to live in society. But I would argue that the root of the problem here is the church thinking in terms of the world, that, you know, the way that we re-Christianize the United States is by capturing the institutions of power and then kind of forcing our views on the rest of society. I think that these kinds of things that we're seeing happening in schools are problematic, but they've been going on for a long time. And I think a large part of the problem with Christians is that we have the breakdown of the family, in the church, as well as in the world, and the collapse of the family uh, is kind of leading to these unfortunate outcomes. Uh, children uh, being forced into these kinds of uh, uh, forms of indoctrination. So again, you know, it's it's very difficult. There are no simple answers here, and um, I just think that. The job of the church, again, is to be the church, is to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and show the world, you know, what it's capable of being.
0: Yeah. So I want to make clear for our listeners that I actually really, I really loved – and like Neela's article, that's why we asked him to be on the podcast, which he so graciously accepted. The reason why I'm sort of cross-examining him is just to bring out more. It's not because I don't believe his views are valid. It's because I want to test them with the best objections I can come up with, and kind of figure out what he'd say. I do want to make sure we leave you with the positive argument he made, not just some objection that I made, which is that um, the government, as government supports for Christianity, increase the number of Christians and their fervor in their Christian faith tends to decline significantly. That's his thesis. And there's two benefits to that. One, he argues, Hey, if we understood this as a church, we would do a better job of reaching people rather than seeking political power. And secondly, it is a rejection of what was called the secularization thesis that he, that now is called the cultural modernization th- thesis, which is the idea that people turn away from religion as we get richer or more knowledgeable or more educated, that that's not really necessarily true. And so, the reason why that's good is because we don't have to be defeatist about it, right? So this is meant to be an encouraging message that um, that we can not only not be privileged, and not only should we reject privilege, but we should seek a free and open market of ideas, and we should recognize that even nonviolent persecution can be good for us, but only if we will endeavor to be the church, grow in spiritual fervor, and figure out a, a path of discipleship and witness that actually recaptures the kind of witness we find in the New Testament. Neela, what do you want to leave people with?
1: I think, you know, in the end, uh, I hope that this is an optimistic message. And I believe that it is possible for the church to recover its witness. But that will take a gestalt shift in how the church thinks about its relationship to the world and how it thinks it can make the biggest difference in the world for christ and i would say that if the church in the west continues down this path of you know seeing p- uh, politics as the best way to make that difference then we can see or expect to see the further marginalization and decline of christianity in these christian majority countries but if the church resists the temptation of political privilege and it becomes more faithful to the ethic of Jesus. There's no reason why the church can't reclaim its witness uh, for Christ.
0: Yeah, and I, I just want to add to because you said that in, in not academic terms, but like just in like factual terms, that both you and I both agree that this is also what God wants to bless, that this is actually the way of Christ. It's what God wants to bless. And so the Holy Spirit wants to, like agrees with this and and wants to support and build his church in the midst of rejecting privilege, seeking a free market of ideas, and even accepting nonviolent persecution as something that we can accept as good for us because it strengthens us and goes against all the perverse incentives of our own nature.
1: Yeah, and I believe that at its heart, the gospel is non coercive, mm-hmm. and I, uh, yeah, cute, I don't man. I don't believe that Jesus would ever force himself on anyone, let alone an entire society or country, right? Mm-hmm. So there's uh, that freedom Often through
0: extremely become. clumsy policies and laws.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the gospel is non coercive. I'm reminded of uh, the rich young man who uh, came to Jesus and he said, you know what? must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come and follow me. And the man went away sad uh, because he had great wealth. But what's interesting about this story is Jesus didn't go after him. He didn't try and change his mind. He didn't try and impose uh, any beliefs on this individual. He just let him go. And I believe that um, you know this is how christians have to respond today as well we can't try and inf- inf- uh, impose our beliefs on society or culture we have to make the best arguments that we can we have to have a very good knowledge of our faith but in the end you know we can't try and win uh, the spiritual battle through worldly means uh, ephesians six twelve says you know for our struggles against it's not against flesh and blood but against uh, the principalities and authorities in the heavenly realms so i think that's how we have to think about this we have to change the way that we view this uh struggle we have to see it as something spiritual not something political yeah yeah
0: my guest today has been dr nile seya i want to thank him not just for being on the podcast for but being on the podcast on singapore time um that's no small thing thank you so much for being with us today thanks for having me joining us for this episode of Engaged Equip. If you like this episode, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to see us discuss, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Otherwise, we'll see you on the next episode. And before we go, let me shamelessly plug um, Dr. Say's book is Weapon of Peace, How Religious Liberty Combats Terrorism, which applies some of these same trends of logic to a very different subject in certain ways. Um, I encourage you to have a look at that as well. See you next time.